Um, I'm also, uh, rumor had it my son was going to be here. Is Nolan in the audience yet? Okay, I'm sure he's on his way. Uh, Nolan's recently moved to the Bay Area, so we have another reason to come visit y'all. Uh, he's in school over in, in Emeryville. Uh, listen, the reason I'm here, okay, we got some things to talk about. Um, and I'll tell you what, I've been inspired, to be honest with you, uh, about, about this talk we're going to have uh, because there's been a little bit of a disconnect in my, in my walk, a little bit of a disconnect in my, in my spiritual life. And I've been struggling with this. And, uh, and that's okay. I've, I've discovered God likes struggle. Uh, in fact, in some ways, I've never felt closer to God uh, through this. So I'm going to try and communicate this to you, and I've, never, and I've never talked about this in public, okay? So I've got notes all over the place, and, and it's really been a struggle. Joe will tell you, I just, even as late as last night, I was just having struggle, struggle putting form to this, but, it, but it, it's something I'm passionate about. So I'm going to try and talk to you a little bit today about obedience. Obedience, and along with obedience, dependence. Obedience and dependence. Uh, someone, someone once told me that uh, um, in, our, in our spiritual life, obedience without dependence is legalism. And dependence without obedience is mysticism. So we don't want to get caught in either one of those places. We want to we be in a, in a place of obedience and dependence. And we know dependence, obviously, we're talking about our relationship with God. So I, that's, that's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning. Um, uh, okay, I, I wouldn't be here unless I'd played in the NFL, right? Uh, otherwise, <laughs> no, let's be honest. <laughs> you know, there's, there's got to be a hook, right? And, and uh, that's, that's the reason I was invited to talk, uh, talk to all of or, or, or at least uh, whatever. You know what I'm trying to say. Uh, and as Kyung said, uh, you know that uh, uh, 12 of the 14 years I played professionally, uh, was with the Cleveland Browns. And you all are from San Francisco. So we won't be talking about the last year's NFL season at all. If you, if you, know, if you know what I mean. Okay. Uh, we actually didn't have much to talk about last year on that matter. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but, but since, since, I am, since I am a football player, and that's the reason I'm up here, I'm going to try and uh, tell you a little bit about this journey I've been on with relationship to football. And because, as Kyung told you, I'm, I'm coaching at the high school level now. And um, and wonder if some of the things that uh, have been brought to my eyes through the, the experience of coaching uh, don't have some parallel with our, with our faith life. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do here today. Um, you know, it's funny, um, at Santa Fe Christian, we've got a pretty good little program down there. Uh, last year I was, I was uh, strutting around up here a little bit because we just won a, a championship, our third championship in four years down there, section championship. Uh, but, it, but there's an interesting dynamic uh, during the season. We play, our, our arch rival is, is another Christian high school, El Cajon Christian High School. Uh, it's actually part of Dr. David Jeremiah's uh, church and university down there and whatnot. And we were really the two premier uh, Christian, uh, uh, not Catholic, but uh, Christian programs, sports programs in the county. 
And yet, for some reason, when we get together and play, being arch rivals, being Christians, we come together and play each other in an ungodly way. <laughs> I, I mean, guys, it gets ugly. Yeah, it gets ugly. <laughs> and, and, and I honestly have to say, it's the only game of the year that's like that. And when I say ungodly, I mean ungodly. I hear F-bombs. And, and, and this has been a hard thing for me to, to comprehend, but it was real easy for me to blame it on the other team and, and, and wonder all these years why they had such a problem you know, with their players. And, uh, but it, it came to light, uh, and, and I re reluctantly had to accept it, that some of our players uh, maybe were to blame as well. And uh, this runs so contrary to everything that our program is about uh, and everything that we talk about and everything that we try and achieve. And so um, I, I really wrestled with this. And the, and the subject came up about what, what is God honoring football? I mean, this was something, this was a, a question that God put in my mind. What is God honoring football? And I talked to my coaching staff about it. I talked to my captains about it. I talked to, to people on campus. I, I talked to, to uh, people in my life who've been spiritual mentors, a coach. Jim Schaffner, who's been an instrumental part of my pro career, but also my spiritual life, about what is God honoring football? And, this is, and it was a tough question, for, I think, for everybody to answer. But you know what, you know what kind of came to, 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 uh, to light to me? Because everybody would, they, were, they were throwing out things like, oh, you know, in between plays, you've got to, um, you know, you've got to help the other guy up and say, God bless you. You know, when you, gotta, when you get in the huddle, you know, when you, when you get in the huddle, you know, you've you got to say a quick prayer before each... Before each play, you know, if you just say, uh, Jesus, this is for you, you know, this kind of thing. And I, I'm hearing all this stuff, but guys, it doesn't make any sense because I played this game. I played this game, and I'll tell you what, in the middle of a football game, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I've, never been in, I've never been to war, but it feels like bullets are flying. You know, you're just dealing with what's coming at you, and your mind is so full of the game itself, it's really hard. And I, think all, and I think unreasonable to think that you're going to stop moment by moment and give God glory for what you're doing in that game. And, um, and so uh, I really I, I struggled with this, but you know what the answer, I mean, the answer came to me, uh, and I hope I'm right about this, because I'm, I'm going to hope to draw a parallel between this and, and, our, and our spiritual life. We can glorify God in those times when the bullets are flying and when guys are um, knocking your head off and when you're, you know, when you're in, the, in the battle based on how we prepared to be there. What prepared us to be in that, in that moment? Because you, you got to ask yourself, and one thing that came up in this discourse that I had was, was well, what would Jesus be like if he played football? Well, I got to think he'd flat knock you on your butt. I think he would get after it because that's what the game of football is all is. A, uh, that's not what it's about, but that is how it's played. That's how it's played. And that's how I would expect and encourage my kids to play the game because God had gifted them to do that. There was a reason why they were able to, do that, to be there. There was a reason why there were people in the stands and to, and to honor those people and honor all the things that make football great. That's what you got to do. You got to knock the other guy on his butt. So it, it occurred to me, though, how it can be God honoring is how do we prepare ourselves to go into that arena? Now, I don't know if this is any different than, than, than uh, 
dimensions to all of our lives. We're going to be in situations where we just don't have time to think about God. But I honestly believe it's, it was in the preparation and how these boys prepare themselves to go into that game that shapes that experience, that shapes who they are when they don't have time to think about how they are. Right? Are you following me a little bit? It's, it's how they prepared to be there that will determine how they act when they get there. Now, we ask a, we ask a lot of our players uh, uh, when it comes to preparation. And um, uh, everybody has an assignment. I love football because football is, not, is, not a, is the ultimate team sport. It's about relationships. It's about the guy that's next to you. It's about honoring the commitment that you've made that allows that person to be able to do what he does because everybody's job depends on somebody else's. Okay? I learned from playing myself that the best games, as Kyung said, you know, we were known as the cardiac kids, and the reason we did is, is we gave people a lot of, a, a lot of uh, heart attacks at the, at the end of these games. We came back and won a lot of games in the last minutes. The secret to that was, although I used to like to have people think that, it was, that there was some miracles that we were pulling out of our hats, the secret uh, to all that was it was our focus. We were paying attention to details. We were simply doing the things that we had practiced all week in preparation to play this game. We were simply so focused that that, that focus allowed us to take that first step, to do that assignment, to do, do the moment-by-moment -moment things correctly to put us in a position to get results, to get the results that we wanted. What we found out was it was the other team that actually got a little bit weird and went into the prevent defense started letting me throw complete passes. Next thing you know, we're moving down the field. And instead of being two touchdowns behind, suddenly we're knocking on the door to win a football game. The secret was, was our preparation and keeping focus. It's keeping focus. So there was a game this, this last season. We played El Cajon High School, uh, different than El Cajon Christian, El Cajon Valley Braves. Uh, they were uh, 2,700 students. We're 360 students in our high school. They're 2,700. They ended up making it to the championship game for Division II. They were a fantastic football team. We didn't know it at the time. But we went out, uh, we went in at halftime, and the score was uh, 33 to 14, El Cajon. Now, we're a pretty good football team. We had never, ever in the five years I'd been there been roughed up like that, 33 points and a half. Their quarterback, who ended up being the uh, section player of the year, had at, at halftime had 270 yards passing. And just under 90 yards rushing. I mean, there was no hope, guys. There was no hope. We were getting spanked. And, and, and we went in at halftime. And, you know, I, my head was spinning. My head was spinning. I had never had to address our, our boys at halftime in, in a circumstance like this. But just those things that I've been talking about came to mind. I went in, and after talking with my coaches, conferring with the staff, finding out if there, there needed to be some some adjustments, um, I went in and I told the boys this. I said, guys, there's no magic here. There's no magic. You know what your assignments are. We have a game plan that will allow us to score enough points to overcome this deficit. We have a game plan that allows us to play good enough defense that that quarterback's not going to have a half like he had in the first half. But our job is to do this one play at a time one assignment at a time, one first step at a time, like we've practiced all year, starting back in the, in the uh, preseason. One play at a time, one, one assignment at a time, one first step at a time. Well, we came out in the second half, and of course, I ended up being a hero because 
Final score, Santa Fe Christian 34, Alcohol 33. And, yeah, yeah. Can't believe I wasn't coach of the year after that. That'll be next year's talk. Um, any, anyway, uh, no, but what was interesting after that is that uh, I just, all, the, all I heard from the parents was, what'd you tell them at halftime? What'd you tell them at halftime? Because I think, I think the world wants to believe that there's these magic words out there and there's this magic performance and this, this pinnacle moment, this epiphany, you know, when everything changes and all is right in the world and everything that we want, God gives us. If we just have this epiphany or have these special words or have this, have this uh, uh, unique uh, moment. Um, now, in order for that, that second half to have happened, uh, something was required of the boys. They had to believe that what I told them was good enough, right? They had signed on and onto the program. This is what the coaches were telling them. Did they buy it? Were they willing to go out and just do it one play at a time? Or were they going to go out and try some Hail Mary pass or some laterals like we saw in the playoffs, unexpected laterals or something like that? To, or no, that was in the national championship game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Were we going to try and do something special? Or, or, or did they, were they willing to depend on the staff and on what I was telling them? And I, and I like to believe that they did. Let me tell you a story about uh, something that's hung with me since, uh, since I played in the NFL. There's two, two, two memories I carry out of the, the, the NFL that I'm having trouble shaking, and I wish that I could. And you can ask me about the, the second one. Uh, hopefully we'll have time after this for some Q&A, okay? Um, maybe somebody can ask me about this. Uh, we were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1983. And uh, our, our games, my memory of playing the Steelers, we were in the Central Division. We played them twice a year. Uh, most of my memories are about playing the Steelers were pretty ugly. Yeah, okay. I had, to, I had to play them twice a year when they won four Super Bowls. Um, you guys all know about their, their team of the 70s. Is, and, and maybe we can argue 49ers Cleveland about something good. I, I mean, uh, wait, where was I going with that? Pittsburgh. <laughs> Never mind. Disconnect there. Disconnect. Um, I, I was going to talk about team of you know best team ever, uh, but it, certainly when I was playing, it seemed like the Pittsburgh Steelers. Anyway, I was playing my last year in Cleveland, and, and uh, we went over to play them uh, in Pittsburgh. And um, the year before I played, uh, we played them in uh, Cleveland. The game before that in Cleveland, I'd thrown six interceptions in one game. Six interceptions. You guys don't see that very often in the NFL, do you? If a quarterback has three of them, it's a bad day. I, I doubled that. I doubled that. And, and uh, we went over to play Pittsburgh, and it was a critical game. We both had gotten off to a good start. It was, it was the 83 season. Uh, before we got on the bus to leave for the stadium, the coach had prepared a special slideshow, and he was playing the theme song from Rocky, and we were supposed to just all rush to the bus, you know, and it was just, this was going to be this pivotal moment, you know. And, and, and we get down to the stadium, and um, I throw six more. So now in two games, in, in, uh, in, in just under 120 minutes of football against the Pittsburgh Steelers, I had 12 interceptions. 
we're at the end of the game and we're down, we're down, uh, the game's over. We're down by, you know, three scores and, and um, it's the last, last minute or so and we get the ball back. And it's one of those times, I have to confess, I'm actually hoping we don't get the ball back, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> darn it, we get the ball back. Now, this is my last year in Cleveland. I had been calling all my own plays, but, but we had a wonderful new offensive coordinator and, and he was calling the plays like they did every place else in the NFL. And, and I love this man, and I and I and I really appreciated playing in the NFL. And uh, and I go back out on the field, and uh, at the time uh, we knew what the first play was. Second play, uh, we were signaling in the plays in those days. There was no headsets, uh, head, you know, receivers in the in the quarterbacks' helmets. And he calls a corner route pattern. Uh, which I knew, you know, I have a read, and I knew what kind of prevent they were doing. I knew that my read was going to take me to this corner route pattern. I'd already thrown two of my picks trying to throw this corner route pattern. <laughs> Game's over, and he's calling this play. And you know what, guys, you know what I did? I called a screen pass. Screen pass is a sure, is a sure completion. And it's a reasonable play given the circumstances, you know, because screen passes, you're crossing them up, they're looking for one thing. Maybe it's going to go for a touchdown. So it's not like I, I just called, you know, a fullback off guard, you know, and then it's obvious I've given up, okay? And this idea of giving up was important to me because if, if nothing else, if nothing else, I used to pride myself in the fact of being the cardiac kids that we were always going for it, no matter what, no matter what the circumstance, we didn't care what people wrote about us. Said it, we were going to take chances, we were going to go for it. Instead of throwing that corner route, I called a screen pass. You know, after the game was over, Larry came up to me, my offensive coordinator, and he asked me about that. And you know, I just I didn't have an answer for him. The truth is, for some reason, I froze. I couldn't. I just didn't want to throw that seventh pick. I just didn't want to throw a seventh pick, and it really wouldn't have mattered. It would have just been statistics. But at that moment, at that moment, I realized that I had violated a trust. I, I, he, I had, I, it, was a, it was a, by definition, my job needed to depend on him. And I had violated that dependency or violated that trust. And, it's, and it has stayed with me ever since. It has stayed with me because of what I ask our kids to do now as I coach football and what I asked our kids to do at the halftime of that, of that El Cajon game. That was... Um, that was a clear violation of that trust and dependency. You know, I, uh, uh, I have uh, Joe, the baseball player, as a, as a young guy who's just uh, joined one of our Bible studies. And um, uh, he played 12 years uh, in, the, in professional baseball, six in the major leagues. And he's been out now for a year and a half, and he just showed up as a uh, guest for one of the guys in our Bible study, and I had a chance to talk to him about, it, about him after, you know, about uh, his career afterwards. And I mentioned to him, I, I said, I, I expect that you're struggling with your, um, w with your retirement. And uh, he was a little hesitant to acknowledge that, and as we talked more and more, he said, yeah, he really was. He really was. Joe's typical of a lot of us that get out of professional sports. You see, we spend a lot of time totally committed to something and totally in love with something and totally bought into something and sold out to something. But an important aspect of that is that there are men in authority in us while we're doing this. 
and part of the love of what we do and part of the reason we commit to work as hard as we do is our relationship with these men who are above us that have authority in our life, men that we depend on so that we can perform when it's, when it's time for us to perform. And Joe was, Joe's really struggling with this. And, he, and he, was, uh, he was ultimately happy to talk to me about it. He was happy to hear that I had told him that all of my friends who had been through this transition had the same struggle. You see, it's, it's hard for professional athletes to admit that they struggle at anything. We want to believe that we can overcome anything. And proof, look at our careers. I mean, we, we beat the odds. We, uh, you know, we were able to do something that everybody, we, we used to think everybody wanted to do. And we were, we were the ones that were able to do it. And so it's hard then to say that you're struggling with life, that you're lost, that you need authority in your life, that you need somebody to be obedient to, to respond to, to respond to. Okay. I, I want to think that there's, that there's a parallel between this and our spiritual life. As I told you before, there's been a disconnect in my life, okay? And, and uh, I don't want to be at cross-purposes for any uh, things that are going on here at Cornerstone Church or what Pastor um, uh, Terry's uh, messages have been to you or, or whatnot. But there has been a disconnect in my, in my life and in my spiritual life. And part of it is, is through my relationship with other Christian men and in Bible study, which I think is critical. And I, and I, I want to support Kelly in his, in his um, um, solicitation to you to be involved in a, in a men's group because I think there's some things that, that, ha that uniquely happen when men get together and study the Bible. So I encourage you to do that. But what I've... Over the years, as I listen to men, and, and, I've, and I'm, I tend to be a person who's actually uh, much more, um, um, less confident than most people think. Being a quarterback, you always, you got to be the cool guy, okay? But un underneath, uh, I'm, I'm, there's some areas that I'm not confident about. And one of them has been my, um, uh, my relationship with God and what is my responsibility in that relationship. In study with other men and dialogue with other men, and I love to do this, and with some friends uh, in my life, uh, I, I have had a sense that my job was to um, get to know God's will, spend time in the Bible, and then tell people about Jesus. Know the Bible, tell people about Jesus. Know the Bible, tell people about Jesus. The problem, problem with this for me and the disconnect is I'm getting to know the Bible, but I struggle to tell people about Jesus. I struggle to find a comfortable place where I can, where I can do this, where I can do it in a way that I feel like I'm um, connecting, that, I, that, that it's valuable to the person that, that's listening to me. And, and it, yet it is so important to me. But guys, I'm not talking about this being a recent phenomenon. I'm talking about this being a problem for me my entire Christian life. I've been a Christian now for about 20 years. I wasn't a Christian when I played. Um, but for 20 years, I've been struggling to have a voice to tell people about Jesus. And it has resulted so often in uncomfortable moments and in moments where I, I fear that I've set, actually set somebody back in their interest in having a relationship with God and knowing who Jesus is. 
that it's paralyzed me. It's paralyzed me. It's a lot easier for me just to study the Bible and to get to know God's will better and, and to be involved in the academics of, of this wonderful story. But getting out and actually having that be of some benefit has been where I've, I feel there's been a disconnect in my life. Um, I guess the question is, does, does, God have a, does God have a football game for us? Does he, have, does he have something that he wants us to do? Does he have a team that he wants us to be a part of? And what's our role on that team? Um, I believe that's the case. I'm a football guy. I'm going to use football metaphors to talk about God's team. Well, we all have different roles, don't we, as football players on a football team. There's, there's offensive guards. There's, deep, there's cornerbacks. I mean, you can't, you can't think of two people built differently, think differently, than an offensive lineman, a defensive cornerback. You've got quarterbacks. You've got safeties, linebackers, receivers, running backs, guys on special teams. Everybody has, everybody has something special that they need to do. I was having so much trouble with this matter of telling people about Jesus that, that I've, I felt myself paralyzed in, in this matter. And someone once told me that, um, that uh, the, devil's greatest, uh, the devil's greatest victory isn't when he gets us to do something evil. His greatest victory is when he gets us to be inactive, when he gets us to be about doing nothing about doing nothing. Okay, if God has a team for us, how, how do we know if we're on the team? Um, scripture that comes to my mind big time, uh, and, I, and I talked to you guys a little bit last year, some of you that were here about Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10. Right before that, I know I'm part of God's team. Ephesians 2.8 says that it's by grace that I have been saved. It's by grace that God has brought me into communion with him. And that's through faith. And it's not of myself. It's a gift from him. And it's not by works. It's not by anything that I've accomplished. It's not by anything I've done that, that has caused him to owe that to me. So there's nothing about it I can boast about. It's by grace that I've been saved. And it's through that grace that I'm able to be a part of God's team. Well. The team's got to be about something, right? We've got to be doing something. Okay? How do we know what to do? Well, <clears throat> I talked last year a little bit about Ephesians 2.10. Here's, here's, here's what I know. Do we have a position on the team? Here's how I know I have a, what my position is on the team. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared for us in advance. We are God's workmanship. The word comes from the Greek poema where we get the word poem, also means we are uniquely crafted by Christ. We are a work of art. God, we are a unique expression of God. Each one of us is a unique expression of God into the world that he loves. Through our relationship with Christ, he has work for us to do, the works that he prepared in advance for us to do. I believe those works are to love the world. I think they are to love the world. I think where my disconnect was is that I thought in order to love the world, I had to, the only way I could do that was to get around to, to talking 
Jesus to them specifically. Specifically. Now follow me. I hope this doesn't sound like heresy to some of you. I don't mean to be preaching at you. I'm, I'm revealing a, a struggle that I've had in my life. Okay? <clears throat> but Jesus, through our relationship with Jesus, God has works for us to do. Maybe it is like a football team. Maybe we all don't have the same assignment. Maybe by this unique way that he's gifted us and the unique love that he wants to express to us out in the world, there are things for us to do that are different than the guy who's sitting next to you. Maybe we all have a special way that we're going to communicate that love, that love into, the, into the world. Um, for me, the disconnect, the problem was trying to do the big deal, hit the home run, right? Get, get, a, get a save right now. We got to get a save. We got to get this guy done. My friend George, who I love, says, Brian, you're a manipulator. You're a manipulator. Every time you get in conversation with somebody, you're, you're, he said, I can see it. You're trying to move that conversation around to where you can get to the Jesus thing. He says, you're a manipulator. Of course, uh, George being the good friend that he is, I actually told him that, but he likes to say stuff back to me and act like it was his idea. But I was aware of that, and that was part of the struggle. That was part of the struggle that, that I've been dealing at. I think that he is... I think that, that George is right, and I was sensing the right thing, that I try and manipulate people into a relationship with Christ. Here's what the Bible's been talking to me about lately. <clears throat> and I love this. Uh, in Ephesians, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise who? Not me. Praise your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. So that, he, so that they will see my good deeds and praise my Father in heaven. There's that deeds thing, those, that works thing again. Um, another one I love is this. I've just uh, been kind of rattling this, this story around that Jesus tells in, in Matthew uh, when, uh, when he was uh, actually um, loving up uh, his disciples. And they, they, did not, they, they misunderstood what he said. They said, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes, or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Oh, what a wonderful picture. I mean, what, anytime we're engaged in the loving of other people, God sees, sees that, at least this is what I read here, as us loving him, directly loving him. Do we have an assignment? Yes, we have an assignment. Are we uniquely created for it? Another story that I love, so simple, so true. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he's standing on the shore, remember? And uh, the, the disciples have gone back to fishing, and John comes on shore. And uh, they're just, they're, they're thrilled when they realize that it's Christ. And Jesus, do you remember what Jesus asked John? Jesus asked John, do you love me? And why would he have to do that? What happened, what happened three nights before, or some time before? Three times, three times John had, had excuse me, Peter had uh, denied Jesus, hadn't he? Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? 
Yes, Lord, you know I do. And what does Jesus say? Then feed my sheep. Another time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Then feed my sheep. A third time he asked Peter, same answer, same, same directive, same, uh, same mission, same assignment for Peter. Feed my sheep. Now, Peter goes on in what? Peter goes on to be the head of the church, right? He's, the, he's our first pope. He ends up being, as Jesus said, he's the rock. He's the rock that God built his, his church on. I mean, I can't think of, a, I can't think of a, uh, a more daunting task. I can't think of a greater uh, assignment or a greater accomplishment, right? And yet, how does, how does God communicate that to him? Feed my sheep. It's as simple as that. Feed my sheep. Uh, this is where God's been talking to me. I don't think God wants me right now at this time in my life to get people around to making a confession for Christ. I think if that's, if that's what he wants to have happen, I need to trust him and depend on him to make that circumstance right. But guys, what I've learned through this struggle and going back to what is God-honoring football is about us being about taking care of the preparation and about us being obedient, obedient to the mission, to the life, to the circumstance that God put us in. Last year, I told you in Ephesians 2.10, we were God's workmanship. Last year at this time, I thought, okay, I'm having some success in football. I'm getting to talk to kids about about, uh, about God while I'm using this talent that I have. Uh, so, okay, in my life, I, I was always good at drawing, I was good at math, and I was good at football. So I've got to create a ministry that is mathematical, and I get to draw things and, and, and be about football. And um, this year, I see myself as God's workmanship that puts me into unique circumstances because of how he created me, where I have influence. And it's in that sphere of influence, not necessarily that the gift of being good at those things, but in that sphere of influence that I have, to be about feeding the sheep, to be about the simple matter of loving everybody that I come in contact with, about seeing everybody that I come in contact with through God's eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He so loved the world. He loves these people that we're put in contact with. There isn't a circumstance in our life where we shouldn't be about the preparation, about obedience to God and the plan that he has for us. This is what struck me. This is what has animated my life for the last year. Um, will we know, will we know uh, what effect we, we have, what our life, what our, the effect that our life and our loving and feeding the sheep will have on other people? I don't, I don't know that we will. I think sometimes it's a, it's a gift or a, um, from God that he gives us an opportunity to see the impact that our life and our obedience and our dependence on him has as, as he uses that to love the world. 
I think sometimes he gives us, gives us a glimpse into that. I don't think we always will. I, I don't think that that's part of, um, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that we need to, I don't think those boys in that locker room at the halftime of the El Cajon game needed me to explain to them why I had come to the conclusion about the, the, the changes that, that we were making at halftime and what we were asking them to do. I don't think that they needed to know. They trusted me enough to know that it was important. And they trusted me enough to know that if they just went out and executed their assignment, that they, that they did it one play at a time, one first step at a time, that it was possible that some great things would happen. Now, I tell you this because I would like to believe, I would like to believe that some of the greatest things that are happening in, in, as a result of my walk with God, I'm not going to know about. And I want to be content with that. I want to be content that I don't need to have feedback. I don't need to have a score. I don't need to see somebody on their knees confessing Christ to, fit, to feel like I, that my life is in God's will that how I'm living my life and how I'm walking with Christ is not glorifying him. I want to believe that I can walk moment by moment obediently and be putting a smile on God's face, independent of what I see in terms of, of reward. My friend uh, George um, told me a story, and, and it, it helped me kind of get my thoughts together for today. Um, he said that when he was in high school, excuse me, when he was in college, he didn't have a car. The whole time he was in college, he didn't have a car. Uh, and he hitchhiked everywhere. And uh, he said that it didn't take him long to figure out that the more he asked the driver about things in the driver's life and the more he got the driver to talk about himself, the closer he was dropped off to where he wanted to go. <laughs> and so he said he became a master at it. He just became a master. Whenever he got in, in that car for four years, boy, he had those guys talking about themselves and what was important in life and, and uh, how uh, uh, just all of those things about the, about the driver. He said, here was the funny thing, because I was telling him about my struggling to try and get these thoughts together and communicate this today. He said, he said here's the thing, Brian. He said, a funny thing happened. He said, after four years of listening to people talk about themselves, he said, I started liking listening to people talk about themselves. I actually enjoy it. Well, he didn't have to tell me that. I know this about George. Uh, George loves to engage people. Lord, George loves to talk about life, and George loves to hear your story. And he said, I wasn't a Christian at the time. He said, but I have a feeling that God was making a deal with me. He said, now when I look back on it, God had used that time to condition me, and now he says he, he thinks that's the biggest part of his ministry. And George is all about God and being active in God's life, or in the, in the life of, of, other, of other people. Um... One last thought, and I'm going to wrap it up here. I think it's important, and part of what I'm trying to communicate here uh, that has been on my mind, 
I, don't, I think we need to be careful about telling God what's important. I think, I think that, was a, that was a problem that I had before in trying to get pe people to confess Christ and manipulating my time with people. I think that I, I, think that I need to be careful about deciding what's important to God. This has freed me up, this understanding of this has freed me up to just be obedient in my day-to-day -day walk and in every circumstance. And I'm not where I, I hope to be, just like George. George probably got better year after year riding around in those cars and asking the right questions. I'm sure I'm not where, where God completely wants me, but I think that it's important for us not, not to want to decide what is a, an important moment to God. What is an important circumstance to God? Who's important to God? I think that's for God to decide. I think it's for us to walk obediently. Let me tell you, let me tell you um, a story, and I'll wrap, wrap it up with this. There was a guy on our team, Henry Bradley. Um, Henry uh, was a, uh, we, were, we were playing a 3-4 or Oki defense. I don't know what they call it today, a three-man front. And Henry was our, was our uh, middle... Uh, tackle on defense. Henry came from um, Southwest Louisiana Central State A&M University. I, you know, there was, he came from nowhere. He came from nowhere. And, and he arrived at the team as a free agent. And, and Henry, God love him, and we all did. His IQ was somewhere less than the number on his jersey. And, and and double digits, you know, you get it. Uh, but Henry, Henry loved football, and he was so excited to be a Cleveland Brown. He was so excited. He swore that was his favorite team when he was growing up, and he was just so about, about being a part of this team. And, um, and he played every day with such enthusiasm that the rest of the players began to just hate him because in practice he would go, he'd go full bore on every play. <laughs> now if you, if you know anything about the NFL, contact, violence happens on Sunday. The rest of the time we're kind of doing this dance. We're learning, we're learning our plays. Everybody knows you can hit. We don't have to prove that. You prove that on Sunday and there'll be film to back you up if, if, if you need proof. But Henry's, Henry's practice in every practice like it's Sunday and he just drove people crazy with this and it was dangerous because it was you know not just for the offensive line but just up the tempo of intensity of everything and there's bodies on the ground and legs and everything else so um, it was the 1980 season and this was this storied year when when everybody in the country was following our football team you know, we were known as the cardiac kids and we went up to play uh, to play um, the Minnesota Vikings, and they were in a do-or-die situation. Um, we had to win one of our last two games uh, to clinch the Central Division Championship. If we lost either one, I mean, if we lost uh, both of those games, we would be out. We wouldn't, they didn't take as many teams in the, uh, in the uh, what's the non-conference winner or division winners? Uh, wild card. They didn't take, they only took one wild card from the AFC and one from the NFC. So we were, we were going to be out. Um, so we go up to play uh, the Minnesota Vikings, and uh, it's a classic cardiac kids game, and we get the ball with, uh, I don't know, less than two minutes to go. We need a touchdown, 
boom, boom, they're in a prevent defense. That was the secret to our success, but nobody knew that. They, they were giving me stuff. I'm taking, I'm taking. We're marching down the field, and sure enough, I hit Calvin Hill on a little halfback route over the center. He hits it in full stride and, and rips off the last 28 yards, and we score and, uh, to go up in this game. And there's, I, honestly, guys, I was trying to remember this. I, I, I think there was 14, 18 seconds left on the clock after we had kicked off to them, and they only returned the ball out to, they didn't even get to our, our kickoff coverage team swarm got them on the 18-yard line. And they had either 14 or 18 seconds left. And I know that this is time for two, two plays, three if you're really good. Two, if you're, two or three if you're really good. And, and by the way, the, the score was such that, uh, that they needed a touchdown now to beat us. So they line up in the Hail Mary thing. And I'm going, great. Let them throw the Hail Mary pass. It's not going to get down there. And then even if they do complete it, they, they need another miracle. And this game's over with. And we're high-fiving on the sidelines and everything else. And they get the, all their guys out on the side right, snap to the center. He turns this, turns this way to throw his Hail Mary. Suddenly turns and fires it to a, a, a receiver who had been on this side. And one of the blocking backs went outside. It was the old-fashioned hook and ladder. Hit him on a hook, lateral to the back, back suddenly down the sideline. He's just ripping off yards. And suddenly, this is serious business, OK? <laughs> This is serious business. Fortunately, our guys recover and knock him out on about the, I don't know, it was 38, 40-yard line or something like that. He'd, he'd had a big gain. So now we're down to one play, and we're going, okay. Well, now they got a shot at the end zone, but when does this ever happen, right? When does this ever work? They put, they put it up there, the classic Hail Mary pass. Ball gets batted up around in the air just like you just, oh, no. And sure enough, Ahmad Rashad, ends up in the end zone with the football and the officials standing over him like this. No time on the clock, game over, game over. They win, they qualify to go into the playoffs. It's just pandemonium, because we're, 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 we're up in that old horrible stadium they used to play up in Minnesota before they built the dome. The, the security's out on the field. The fans are coming, coming over the, the, the fence. They're coming out on the field. Now, this is, this is the olden days, guys. Football games, NFL games couldn't end on a touchdown. You had to kick an extra point before the game was over with. So the security's trying to keep people off the field. Uh, everybody's, there's, chaos is breaking out. Their, their extra point, you know, their, our teams are out on the field to kick the extra point. The fans are running out through them and everything. That finally. The security just starts waving for us to run to the, uh, to the locker room. So we, they called the game. They called the game. Or, or we thought. They're telling us to go to the, to the locker room. No, I'm sorry. Not the officials, but uh, Sam Ritigliano, our head coach, said, to the locker room, guys, to the locker room. So we, f we filed down the locker room. You had to go down through their dugouts where the twins played, go back into this funky locker room. And we're just, we're not happy about this. Um, we got to go play Cincinnati the next week, and they're dangerous, and we'll be playing them at home, and they got nothing to lose, and, and we just did not want that to be our, our division championship game. So we're in there. Sam gives us a little bit of a talk. Uh, we're all dejected. He wants to tell us we, you know, next week we'll take care of business, yada, yada, yada. Nobody's, nobody's listening, right? Nobody's listening. We're done with that. Everybody goes to their lockers. We're getting out of our stuff and walking to the, to the shower. And in walks Henry Bradley into the locker room, and he's fully 
dressed in his clothes with his helmet on. He's carrying a football, and he comes walking into the locker room. Somebody says, Henry, where you been? He said, uh, I'm, on the, uh, I'm on the field goal block team. So where you been? He said, well, um, they kicked the, the extra point, so I had to be out there. And, I, and, and somebody asked him, what's with the football? And he said, well, that's what took me so long. I, I blocked the kick. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I recovered the fumble, but I couldn't find anybody to give the ball to. True story. True story. You know, guys, I, t I tell you this story because I'm going to wrap this up. I tell you this story because I want my faith life to look like Henry Bradley's football career. I want my faith life to look like that. Henry was just doing his job. Henry had an assignment, and he answered the call. Didn't appear to be any reason for him to do that. His team wasn't out on the field. He lined up. There's good chance, you know, that their team didn't even try because, like, they knew it was over with. But Henry got by somebody, got by the second guy, and dove and blocked that kick, and then recovered the fumble. <laughs> I, I want my faith, faith life to be like Henry's, the way Henry played football. And I'll let God decide whether it's important or not. I guarantee you Henry had no idea that what he was doing was significant or not. I just know Henry. But we've, the, the members of that team have had more fun telling this story about Henry. And the thing that we remember most about that season, and that story always comes up. And Henry as a person always comes up, and his enthusiasm, and how much we enjoyed sharing that field in that locker room with Henry. So. Obedience has to be dependence, uh, combined with dependence, right? Obedience without dependence is legalism. Dependence without obedience is mysticism. Um, my prayer for all of us is that our faith life will be a combination of obedience and dependence. Amen? Amen. That's all I got for you guys. Thanks, Brian. We want to take just a moment if you guys had any uh, questions. I know last time we had some questions that didn't get answered. So right over here. Um, uh, uh, I Excuse me, Kyung, did you say you had some water up here? Oh, thank you. Yeah. I can, um, uh, I, I feel for, for what you've been going through because it's a struggle that I've uh, also uh, gone through. And uh, as you were speaking, what the scripture that came to mind was, um, uh, I planted Apollos water, God gave the increase. Yeah. And uh, so I was thinking, you know, so our, our job is just to plant. Maybe uh, we're not expected to see the, uh, the confession, uh, the uh, kneeling down, the prayer, you know, just so long as we can come away saying, um, yes, I did plant there, and, you know, God, you know, you, you 
you give the increase. Right. Uh, so what, what comes to my, um, my plenty would be my testimony of how, how I came to know the Lord. So my question to you is, how did you come to know the Lord? Oh, okay. Um, well, in a nutshell, um, I lied to the pastor of the church that we had started attending um, so that I could get my son christened. I told him I was a Christian and I wasn't. And, um, uh, but the way I had lived my life up until that time, and it had served me pretty well because I thought, you know, if a little guy like me can be the NFL's MVP, I must be, you know, I must have figured something out here. The way I used to rationalize th things is that for every bad thing I did, I'd do a bigger good thing. Do you know what I mean? And the, uh, and the good thing, I, and, th and that was a bad thing. I mean, when I'm lying to this pastor, I'd, I wasn't expecting the question, okay? So at that point in my life, I was kind of an instinctive liar. I mean, I was just, I got to lie now because we got the, you know, the, the band's been paid and the caterer's already made the food. It was literally, I'm, I'm serious. That's what a christening used to be in my family. You know, it was a party and a lot of booze and, you know, and, and, a, few, and a few holy words. And... Um, in a backyard and not in a church, but we needed a pastor to do it, and this happened to be the guy that I asked. And um, uh, by the way, I, it, I didn't have time to go find somebody else because I'd, I had asked him uh, a month before, and uh, he said yes, so we were planning on him, but he expected me to take the new members course, you know, for the church. So I had done that. I just wasn't expecting a confession of faith when it was over with, you know what I mean? And I hadn't gotten there yet through the class. So at any rate, uh, my, my, my uh, payback was that I was going to uh, take him up on his uh, encouragement or almost requirement that I get involved in a Bible study. And it was uh, through my own trickery and God's dynamic way of working in our lives that I was forced to sit in front of Scripture. And uh, for the first time in my life, although I had been raised uh, in the Catholic Church and had spent eight years in Catholic grade school and been an altar boy and, and whatnot, um, when I turned and went in the other direction, I went hard. And, um, and it wasn't until I was back in front of Scripture um, and about a year's worth of study that I was rationalizing the sin in my life and uh, um, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, putting a new translation to the Bible, you know, uh, to where it accommodated all of the sin in my life. It was after about a year of that I realized I was being pretty hypocritical, that the, that the Bible had a very clear message. And uh, that uh, I either needed to believe what the Bible said and continue to study it and change my life, or I needed to shut it and walk away from it. And I don't know why. Uh, honestly, at the time, it wasn't an epiphany or anything. I just said, you know what, I'm going to stay in front of this thing, and I'm just going to simply study it as if it's the truth. And that's when God uh, changed my life. When I first read this book as if it were the truth. And I, I don't know if that resonates with any of you guys, but uh, uh, that's when, uh, when I met Jesus. And so... Uh, and it wasn't, you know, like I said, it wasn't an epiphany. I wasn't slain in the spirit. It wasn't, you know, suddenly I knew I was a Christian. In fact, I, re I remember the first time I 
it was official is that I had one of my old football buddies um, uh, kind of questioning why I wasn't doing the, the, the party thing that he was used to doing with me. And he knew I was going to church. And he said, you, you haven't become a Christian, have you? <laughs> and, and I do remember the words coming out of my mouth where I said, you know, I think I have. And, I, and at that point, I, I knew I was too far down the road to the hounds of heaven had caught me, the hound of heaven, and uh, I was a goner. <laughs> I've been a goner for 20 years now. That's how it happened. How are we doing on time? Oh. Um, okay. So you've, you've did your coaching for like six years. For that, I mean your football team. What I'm getting to is I do an after-school program. Uh-huh. And it's like first grade, sixth grade. And always when the kids get fifth grade, sixth grade, it's like they get kind of want to do their own thing. And I had this kid that after he left, he never came around, you know. He was kind of like, hey, Anthony, can I get you involved so you can lead things? Yeah. And the other day he was, he was like jogging the neighborhood and he came over, walked out on the court and wanted to talk to me. How you doing? Tell me about his schooling. And I thought this kid, you know, he did, he always thought, used to be kind of like teenagers don't know how to do rules and they don't know how to follow things. So I uh, like the little kids. Have you ever had a kid in your football program and you thought, hey, I lost this kid and he comes back around and Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you start out by asking me how long I've coached and what, what that uh, avenue looked like, because I, I think it's relative. I, uh, no coaching experience. D when I got out of football in 1985, I said, I want to get on with my life. I want to use the math and the art part of my life and enough with the football. And, uh, and, and so this, this opportunity came up at, at school where they needed help, and this, I won't go into the whole story. but. So I, after spending about uh, two months the year before just helping with the quarterbacks, I'm suddenly a head football coach in high school. And it's a huge responsibility. So it was hard for me to, and I understood that better than some of the people are asking me to do it. Um, so that was five years ago. So I don't have a long track record with players, but clearly, clearly we've had players who, not uh, the majority, no problem, but we've had several players who didn't buy into the program. You know, they just were, I, I don't know, they just didn't, they just didn't want to, to give up their freedom or their independence. And yes, they have come back. And yes, I have have some wonderful stories, not that came out of their mouth, but I can just tell by who they are and their attitudes when they come back and them wanting to come back and be around the program and to honor the program and talk to the players and things like that. Now, I, I tell you this, uh, um, because um, it's not necessarily a failure on the part of the uh, coaches. We can only do so much. You know, I, I'm always asked about football being a ministry, and I suppose to a degree it's a ministry. But as I told some of you guys last year, the, the kids don't sign up because they're looking for a ministry. Uh, the kids sign up because they want to win a championship. And so my, my first responsibility to them is to help them do that. But along the way, along the way, my hope is that they get to see some men, some role models, help them uh, with a very important part of their life. And they're very impressionable when they're in high school and they're playing football. Uh, to help them with a very important goal in their life in a way that honors God. 
Okay? It's who we are is, is our ministry and how, how we march down this path. And that's part of what I was trying to communicate this morning. You know, I think that people want to see godly men in the everyday circumstances of their life, to see how a godly man walks through life in, in parallel circumstances with them. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I think sometimes our greatest message to them, doesn't, it doesn't come out of our mouth, you know? It comes out of who we are, and them wanting to know, why does he live this job? Why does he live this, his marriage? Why does he live uh, his responsibilities the way he does? And then we have a voice with them. Do you know what I'm saying? And so for some of these kids that, that we coach, they're around it for four years, but they resist it. Do you know what I'm saying? Uh, but it's interesting when they get away from that, and they get away from the structure and the, and, the, and the challenge that we put in front of them and the way we expect them to walk through that challenge. Uh, I've had them come back, and I can just tell by the look in their eyes they really thought it was special. So, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Um, we have time for one more question. Anyone else? Comment? Um, I know you're not seeking feedback, but uh, you're definitely a feeding sheep. And uh, being from Cleveland, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was 14 seconds left in that game. 14, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, and I was in the kitchen, and I didn't see the modern shots because my mom was praying. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do have a lot of uh, friends in Cleveland, Boston, New York that aren't Christians, and um, I've been able to use your celebrity, if you want to call it that, and it's made a big difference since last year. So there's been two, three people who've um, turned to the Lord. Really? Really? Yeah. See? You just don't know how God's using you, huh? You just don't know what... Uh, how important any circumstance that we're in in life is and the effect that it's having on people. Was that our last question or do we have time for one yes. more? Yes. Um, well, why don't we just close in prayer also. Um, again, I, I think, again, I, I invited Brian. I, I admit there was some selfish interest there. I wanted to meet him as well as have him share. Um, but I think it's, I think it, I think it's almost, um, I mean, I would, I would submit to all of you that what he's doing with his boys actually will far outweigh in the, in the eternal reward um, all his accomplishments in the NFL. And so I'd like to just lift up Brian in prayer and, and uh, just, just close out the, this, this session in prayer. So um, I just lift up a prayer for Brian. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for using this mighty man of God, Lord. And he may be a late bloomer in the Christian sense, Lord, but you have grabbed his soul and you have given him a purpose and a, and a, and a role, Lord. And, and I pray that you would use him in a mighty way, Lord. I thank you for his humility and his, his um, dependence on you, all the things that he shared today, Lord. I pray that you would bless my brother, Lord, that you would use him, Lord, to speak and to show, Lord, to all the boys, Lord. And, and I just pray for the Santa Fe Christian pro football program, Lord, that may that be a mighty tool, Lord, where some boys can, can really see why it's just not about church organization or Sundays or meetings, Lord, but it's about their lives and what Jesus did for them, Lord. And I pray that you would use Brian, Lord, and his staff, Lord. And, and I pray that you encourage my brother and just enable him, Lord, and strengthen him, Lord. Um, even in this off-season, Lord, may you prepare uh, for this fall, Lord. And I ask a blessing over him. I thank you for using him, Lord. And, 
and, um, and bringing him here, Lord, to give us, give us this message, Lord, of obedience, Lord. And I pray for myself as well as all the men here, Lord, that this tough issue of obedience, Lord, so many of us have tried it our way for so long, Lord. I pray that each one of us here, Lord, in whatever areas we're dealing with, Lord, would bow our knees to you, Jesus, for you have the perfect way, Lord. You have the best way. You are the gracious Father that won't give us stone, Lord, but would give us what we would ask, Lord, and what is best for us. I thank you for my brothers, Lord, this morning. Again, I bless this meeting. May we, as, as Anthony shared, Lord, may we use this opportunity to share, Lord, and again, if needed, use words, O oh Lord. Bless you, Jesus. I lift up this meeting, Lord, in your precious Son, Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you again. All right. Thanks, guys. There's additional food.